are in Matthew chapter 18. We want to finish out the chapter here this morning. And uh, let me lead us in a word of prayer as we get started here. Lord, I thank you for this text. I pray that you would give me the grace to teach it accurately and clearly. And then, Lord, uh, help us to apply it to our lives. And certainly, it reaches right down to where we live, every one of us. So, Lord, we commit our study to you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew, and the theme of Matthew is Christ the King, and we have worked our way down to chapter 17 through 20, the instructions of the King. And uh, as God's people, we are ultimately headed towards the kingdom. We are kingdom people. But we're not there yet. We're not in the kingdom yet. We are still praying, your kingdom come. Uh, But we are headed there. We're not there yet, but we're headed there. And the question then is, how should we then live? How should we then live as God's kingdom people? Paul says that we should walk worthy of those who are called to the kingdom. Well, the question of how we should then live is answered here in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Matthew 18 is the, the fourth of five great discourses in the book of Matthew. We have the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. Uh, the commissioning of the Twelve, chapter 10 the uh, chapter on parables and the significance of parables, uh, Matthew 13, and then community instructions, as we see here in chapter 18, and finally uh, uh, rounding out uh, the the fifth of these uh, discourses is the Olivet Discourse related to end times in Matthew 24 and 25. There's really three great emphases here in chapter 18, uh, humility, accountability, and forgiveness. And they interlock. They go together. Humility, accountability, and forgiveness. Now, humility is the dominant theme in the first part of the chapter in verses 1 through 14. We must humble ourselves in saving faith to even enter the kingdom. And then we find that those who will be greatest in the kingdom are those who have lived humble lives. And true humility is seen in how we treat others. Uh, It's not about self. It's about others. And then there's accountability, as we noted last time in verses 15 through 20. God's people are called to holiness, and there is mutual accountability in the family of God. We need to love each other enough to confront each other when sin is involved. Such action is ordained by heaven. And then finally, forgiveness. When people mess up, they need to be confronted. And then when they are repentant, they need to be Forgiven, And that's what we're looking at this morning in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Now, it is appropriate that the section on confronting a brother in sin and church discipline, as found in 18, 15 through 20, it's appropriate that that section is then followed by this long section here in Matthew 18, 21 through 35 on forgiveness. Now, it's important not to despise a brother or cause them to stumble, as noted earlier in the chapter. It's important to seek to restore a fallen brother, and it's important to forgive them once they come to repentance. Now, in context, Jesus has just outlined the steps for confronting and dealing with a brother who has sinned, as we saw in 18, 15 through 20. Now, it's in that context... In that same context now that we have Peter ask this question. Let's pick it up, 1821. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, 
How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, Peter undoubtedly thought that he was being most generous in offering to forgive a brother up to seven times. You understand, uh, the rabbis taught that the Old Testament scriptures, and they went to certain references back there, uh, taught that three strikes and you were out. So Peter, in saying seven, is like, I'm doubling that plus one. Boy, that's, I'm really going a long ways further than the rabbis. There was a certain rabbi who said, if a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense the third time, they forgive him. The fourth time, they do not forgive him. That was the rabbis. There's an old worldly proverb that says, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times, shame on both of us. Well, the Jews set the forgiveness level at three. But Peter suggested up to seven times. You know, forgiveness is not a natural thing. Do me and I do you. You know, you hit me and I'll hit you back a little harder. After all, you have it coming. You hit me. Uh, Forgiveness is not natural. Someone has said we are never more godlike than when we forgive. King Louis XII of France famously said, nothing smells so sweet as the dead body of your enemy. (laughs) Wow. How's that for an attitude? That's natural thinking. But God's people are a forgiven people, and we are to be a forgiving people. In fact, we are called to be radical forgivers, just like our God is a radical forgiver. And wouldn't you agree with me that it's a pretty radical thing that he has forgiven you and me of all of our sins? Isn't that pretty radical? I mean, I think about some of the things that I've done in my life, and it makes me blush, even now. Things that I did even before I was a Christian or after I was a Christian. It's like, oh my goodness, just to think, I'm forgiven of that. And you are too. We are forgiven of all of our sins. Radical forgiver is our God. And he calls us to this as well. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Had to be a mind blower for the disciples. Are you kidding? The rabbis were off by 487. Now there's a textual debate as to whether this should read 77 times or 70 times seven, which would be 490. But really the debate in terms of the point being made is irrelevant because Jesus is making the point either way you take it, that we should be willing to forgive endlessly. This is clearly illustrated in the parable that Jesus goes on to give. However, we should note that the forgiveness theme in verses 21 through 35 should not be divorced from the accountability theme in verses 15 through 20. They go together. The forgiveness emphasis in verses 21 through 35 assumes the person is repentant. As stated in verse 15, if you confront your brother about sin and he hears you, that is, he repents, then you have gained your brother. That's the basis for true reconciliation and restoration. But what if he doesn't repent? Well, if he doesn't repent, uh, Jesus outlined the steps of church discipline. 
And if he n- does not come to repentance, then you are to not have anything to do with him. You are to treat him as a heathen or as a tax collector. And the Jews had nothing to do with pagans and tax collectors. It does not say you are to forgive him anyway. Uh, that's not where the church discipline steps end up. It doesn't say forgive him anyway, even if he doesn't repent. No, if he won't repent, you have not gained your brother and you are to have no dealings with him. Now, this is an important clarification because many teach that no matter what, you are to forgive in the sense that you just let him get away with it. And you just continue on as if nothing happened. That's really not biblical. There is accountability in the family of God. And I think our teaching sometimes has become so watered down. We want to say, well, there's forgiveness without accountability, you know. Um, and human depravity can be very skillful at playing Christians according to Christian terms. Years ago, we had a couple visit our church. Many years ago, I was first in the ministry. And as I met with them, uh, they were having marriage problems. The man had been unfaithful again. And once again, he claimed to be repentant, as was his pattern, and therefore supposed that all should be fine. I mean, this was his pattern. He knew the game very well. And as I met with him, he seemed so sincere. I mean, so sincere in his repentance. Well, a little time went by, and yet again, he was involved in yet another affair. I mean, it was so bad that he told his wife, you know, even if I have other women, I still want you to be my wife. And I want you to forgive me every time I do it. And so the pattern of adultery followed by a profession of repentance continued. And it got to the point where it was clear that he was playing what I call the repentance game. He knew, as Christians, we are obligated to forgive him upon repentance. And and so being caught, he would just, you know, say the magic repentance words and make fresh promises claiming we should just forgive him and go on as if nothing had happened. Mark DeHaan says, with a few well-chosen words, the tables are turned Like a wrestler doing an escape in reverse, an offender regains the upper hand. His victims are now expected to forgive and forget. And as believers, we are to be a forgiving people. Ephesians 4.30 says, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. I think there's an important qualifier there. If he repents. But what if the person has a track record of feigning repentance? That's not so easy. It's not so easy. Now, certainly we should always maintain a spirit of forgiveness. Even as Jesus on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. However, it is clear that while Jesus desired for these to be forgiven they in reality would only be forgiven if they came to true repentance. Only upon true repentance would they know reconciliation with God. You say, well, I think God just forgives everybody. Uh, No, that's not true. He he does demand repentance. You want to be God-like? That's the principle with God. In a similar way, we should always have a forgiving spirit. We want to forgive. And yet, before reconciliation can take place, there must be true repentance. Gary Ingring 
says this. We must recognize that forgiveness doesn't necessarily restore the status quo. Forgiveness isn't the same as reconciliation. Forgiveness clears the ledger. It does not necessarily instantly rebuild trust. Forgiveness is given. Reconciliation is earned. Forgiveness cancels all debts, but it does not eliminate all consequences. Now, never should we countenance a spirit of vengeance or a holier-than-thou attitude. We must not become bitter, but rather always desire restoration and be willing to forgive. Yet at the same time, we are not to be naive or undiscerning. This is most certainly a place for working out our salvation with fear and trembling. I think the Bible teaches there is a place for testing repentance. And the premier example of this in the scriptures, I think, this example of testing repentance is found in the life of Joseph. Everybody agrees that Joseph is really kind of a, a, a great example uh, of uh, godliness. He was a very godly man who was treacherously wronged by his brothers. His story appropriately comes early in the Bible, in Genesis, and is given a lengthy treatment in Genesis 37 through 50. Here we have presented the prolonged story. I mean, you've got uh, 13 chapters given to this. The prolonged story of how Joseph was sold by his older brothers into slavery and ended down in Egypt, ended up down in Egypt. Fast forward. 20 years later, Joseph was in the position of being exalted to second in command over the whole of Egypt. Then his brothers showed up in need of food. Now, the brothers did not recognize Joseph, but he did recognize them. And he blurted out, you scoundrels. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. No, no, he didn't do that. But what did Joseph do? Did he immediately say, all is forgiven. Everything is fine. No, he didn't do that either, did he? No, he tested them to see if anything had changed. He tested them to see if repentance had taken place. He tested them to see if family reconciliation could indeed take place. Joseph had his brothers incarcerated and then ordered that one of them be sent to bring back their youngest brother, who happened to be Joseph's only full-blood brother. He said, quote, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you. Genesis 42, 16. Well, immediately, the brothers remembered how they had abused Joseph and said among themselves, his blood is now required of us. Isn't that interesting? It was just lurking underneath the surface in their conscience. The long arm of the conscience. The brothers did not realize that Joseph understood their conversation, and this gave him an insight into their souls. This demonstrated contrition. Joseph then put them through a battery of tests for this reason, as he wanted to see their, what their character was all about at this point in their lives and whether or not they had changed. Well, when Benjamin was brought to Egypt, Joseph provided all his brothers with a meal. <laughs> but Benjamin, I mean the young guy, Benjamin, received five times the amount of food as the others. Wow, wow. Uh, well, how would these other brothers respond to the youngest being so favored? 
Would they respond with hatred and jealousy as they had responded to Joseph so many years before? Well, in applying these tests, Joseph was not being malicious. He was rather seeking to discern whether or not reconciliation was possible with his family. True restoration could only happen if true repentance was in place. The final test was when Joseph's silver cup was placed in the sack of Benjamin as they departed for home. As they were then arrested and brought back to give an account for taking the cup, Joseph agreed to let them all go home and keep Benjamin as his slave. Here was the great test, which greatly resembled what had happened to him 20 years before. They could get rid of Benjamin, fabricate a story to their father, Jacob, and once again move on with their lives. But things were now different. Judah, who had years before suggested selling the favored son, Joseph, now makes an impassioned plea offering his life for the life of Benjamin. In brokenness, he says, quote, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Thus, true repentance was evidenced in the lives and hearts of Joseph's brothers. They now demonstrated true solidarity with their brother, Benjamin, and true remorse over what they had done to Joseph. It was on this basis that reunification and reconciliation was now possible. Joseph then revealed himself to his brothers and embraced them. There's a time to say with John the Baptist, bear fruits worthy of repentance. In true repentance, there is a turning to God, which should be accompanied by works befitting repentance, as Paul says in Acts 26. Paul noted that the Corinthians had a godly sorrow, which is indicative of true repentance. This repentance clearly displayed itself in their lives, which Paul says, quote, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Now, many today have a theology that says no one ever needs to prove themselves in this way. A flippant, I repent, is good enough and should be accepted without any questions. However, I would argue that the example of Joseph refutes this. There is a place for testing repentance, but it must be done with the right heart. John MacArthur says, in normal circumstances, love obliges us to assume the best about those who profess repentance. Scripture does suggest, however, that there are certain times when it is legitimate to demand the fruit of repentance before assuming that someone's profession of repentance is genuine. Again, what Jesus is teaching us here assumes that the person is truly repentant, and therefore we are obligated to forgive them. By the way, I, I uh, remember uh, John MacArthur one time saying in a message I was listening to that when somebody is repentant, it will be obvious. I think that's generally true. When people are broken, when there's a true brokenness, it's usually obvious. There are two great errors to be avoided. Number one, on the one hand, we must not fail to properly hold people accountable for sin. And number two, on the other hand, we must not fail to extend forgiveness when they are repentant. Matthew 18, 21 through 35 is Jesus' longest recorded statement regarding the principle of forgiveness. The act of forgiving one <clears throat> who has wronged us is one of the most responsible and spiritual activities in our lives and must be repeated continually throughout one's life. We live here 
C.S. Lewis said, to forgive for the moment is not difficult, but to go on forgiving, to forgive the same offense every time it recurs to memory. There's the tussle. There's the tussle. How many times do you come back to forgiveness? You know, it comes back. Oh, I forgave. Oh, now I'm wrestling. Now I'm re- we live there. What Christ has to teach us here about forgiveness is right where we live. Verse 23, the parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Christ is here presenting the kingdom standard related to forgiveness. There's a lesson here for all who hope to enter the kingdom. All those headed for the kingdom are forgiven an incalculable amount and therefore are also called to be big forgivers. Now keep in mind, this is a parable. And parables generally have in view one main point. And the point here is that we have been forgiven more than we could ever imagine. And therefore we ought to be willing to forgive Whatever anyone does to us, I I don't care what it is, we should be willing to forgive them. We are asked to forgive, what we are asked to forgive is comparatively small in comparison to the forgiveness that has been granted to us. So, the king in the parable is settling accounts with his servants. Uh, The word servants is more literally slaves. Verse 24, and when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Remember, this is a parable. It's making a point. The king in view here ultimately represents Jesus, who will be king in the kingdom. In the parable, one is brought before the king who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, 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 you you just got to realize what this is all about. The the talent was the largest denomination of money in the Roman Empire. And 10,000 was the largest number used. Now, the value of a talent was what one would earn somewhere between working for 16 to 20 years. We'll use 20 years just for, you know, to keep it simple. So the, that was the value of just one talent, 20 years worth of wages. So now times 20 by 10,000. And what do you have? 200,000. This means that in order to pay off this debt, this slave would have to work for 200,000 years. I mean to tell you that's working overtime. The point is, this was an impossible debt that could never be repaid. Nobody lives 200,000 years. Not even Methuselah. And this is how we should see our sin debt before God. How indebted are we? How much has God forgiven me? It's an impossible debt that we could never pay off. Verse 25, but as he was not able to pay, I would say, as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. Now, a common practice in the ancient world was that an indebted person who had no means to pay, no means to pay his debt, would be sold into slavery with his family to help pay off the debt that had been incurred. And in this way, the lender would recoup some of the money. Verse 26, 
The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Ed Glasscock says, reflecting total humility, he prostrated himself, knowing that he was helpless before the master and totally dependent upon mercy, not justice. Verse 27, then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. The man had asked for patience and received a full pardon. This this was not justice, but rather an epic display of grace. The word forgave means to dismiss, to send away, or cancel out. This was a total release from his incalculable debt. This is the experience of all God's kingdom children. This is where we are. We are trophies of grace. I love Colossians 2, 13 and 14. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All the charges against us were nailed to the cross. Our sin debt was insurmountable. We could never pay it off. It's offensive to think, well, my little thing I'm doing here is going to help pay for my sin. It's blasphemy. Our entire sin debt was paid for by Christ on the cross, resulting in believers being forgiven of all trespasses. It was all nailed to the cross. All the charges were nailed to the cross. You say, but, but I've done this. Nailed to the cross. I don't care what you've done. Nailed to the cross. You want to be free? You want to be, uh, experience freedom in Christ? Look to the cross. How wonderful to be forgiven of such a great debt. And to be forgiven in such a great and magnanimous way. Verse 28. Wonderful to be forgiven. Incalculable debt. But, but, verse 28. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him. I mean, he got physical. And took him by the throat. Ah! Saying, pay me what you owe. This man had just experienced incredible grace. In which 200,000 years worth of debt had been canceled out. But going out, he found a fellow servant who owed him a mere 100 denarii. Now, a denarii, a denarii was a day's wages in this day, as we see in Matthew 20, verse 2. This means this fellow servant owed him about 100 days worth of wages, or roughly about three months' pay. So, you've got 10,000 talents, 200,000 years worth of labor, versus 100 denarii, three months' worth of labor. Now, it is true that three months' worth of wages is not insignificant. But in comparison to 200,000 years' worth of wages, it's a pittance. This man who had been forgiven so much was not willing to forgive this very little amount by comparison. Now, this is descriptive of the Christian who has been forgiven so much by God and yet refuses to forgive relatively little things by comparison. We as God's people are all 10,000 talent 
debtors who have been forgiven all. You've got 200,000 years worth of debt on you. And I do too. And yet we've been forgiven all. The sins of others against us are trivial in comparison to the enormity of our own sins against God. You say, well, look with that person. No, just look at yourself. Verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you all. This fellow servant in abject humility fell down and pleaded with him with the exact same language that he himself had earlier pleaded with his master as seen in verse 26. He had been so happy to be forgiven, his overwhelming impossible debt, but now he refused to forgive someone else of a much lesser debt. This represents great sin. Thank God I'm forgiven, but I refuse to forgive you. That's incredibly sinful. And this is exactly what we do as Christians when we refuse to forgive others who have sinned against us. Verse 30. And he would not, but went and threw him in prison till he should pay the debt. Instead of forgiving his fellow servant, he went and threw him into what is called debtor's prison until he should pay the debt. There was no mercy. He had been shown amazing grace, and yet he refused to extend mercy to another. The natural response to receiving great grace should then be that we extend grace. If we're saved by grace, we should be gracious. This is our calling. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Matthew 5, 7. Verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved. And came and told their master all that had been done. This action grieved the fellow servants who saw what had happened. They knew this was dreadfully wrong. And so they went and told the master what had happened. A lack of forgiveness is grievously offensive to fellow believers. But it offends God most of all. This is not how forgiven children are to act. Verse 32. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. The master called him to account, charged him with acting wickedly. A lack of forgiveness on the part of the forgiven is wicked. It's wicked activity. Again, MacArthur says, when a Christian allows remaining sin to control an attitude or action, he is being wicked. Because sin is always sin, whether committed by a believer or an unbeliever. The sin of unforgiveness is in some ways even more wicked in a believer because he has infinitely greater motivation and power to be forgiving than does a person who has never experienced God's redeeming grace. How can a person accept God's mercy for all his sin and unpayable debt and then not forgive some small offense committed against himself? Such unforgiveness is sheer wickedness. The meaning of wicked refers to that which is ethically evil or morally bad. Verse 33. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? Here was the problem, a lack of compassion. The word compassion is often translated as mercy. Mercy is the idea of taking pity on the undeserving. It has compassion on those in misery who cannot help themselves. Verse 34, 
And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Now notice that he was delivered to the torturers and not the executioners. This picture of severe disciplinary action is what's in view and not eternal damnation. Now some have taken the view that those who will not forgive show that in fact that they are not saved. And it is true that Jesus said all would know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. And it is true that a key way that true love demonstrates itself is in the forgiving of one another. 1 Peter 4.8 says, And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. We're to love one another. And a key way we demonstrate that love is in forgiving one another. And it is true. If people are without love, then they don't really know God. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So one of the defining characteristics of true believers is that we love. And one of the defining characteristics of true love is that we forgive. So, if it is true that love is the defining trait of being a child of God, and it is, and if it is true that God's love forgives, and it is, well, then if someone harbors a bitter, unforgiving spirit, they really should examine themselves to make sure they're in the faith. John Wesley wrote this, If this, being forgivers, if this be Christianity, where do Christians live? Well, that's a great question. Hopefully we can say right here. Uh, Hopefully we can say forgiveness defines us, not harboring a bitter spirit. Forgiveness is the stuff of authentic Christianity. This, This is our calling. We are forgiven and we are called to be forgiving. At the same time, Christians can fall into sin, including the grievous sin of unforgiveness. This is why Christ and the New Testament scriptures so strongly warn us about it. This is an in-house sin against a brother. After teaching us how to pray, including forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, Christ then gave this warning in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, notice Jesus says this in reference to those who have God as their heavenly father. These people are already saved. In the scriptures, there is both a penal aspect of forgiveness and a parental aspect of forgiveness. And in saving faith, we are forever forgiven of the penal aspect of sin. We become children of God and the penalty of sin is forever taken care of. Uh, Christ died for all of our sins and we're forgiven. Christ has once and for all paid our penalty, and we are forever set free from the penalty of sin. However, in our walk, when we sin, it becomes a maintenance issue with our Father. It's kind of like my children growing up, when they get out of line, and they were out of sync with their father, there was a problem between us. But I never, ever thought to say to my kids, okay, you're no longer my child, you're gone. No, never entered my mind. 
No matter what they did, even if we were out of sync, they were still my child. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. When we are out of fellowship with God, we are in need of parental forgiveness. He's our Father. God will not kick us out of His family. Our position in the family is forever settled by the cross. But we can be out of step with God and therefore experience His chastening until we get right, until we are willing to forgive. The torturers here represents God's chastening. A form of the word tortures is used to describe different tormenting afflictions, often physical afflictions in the Gospels, or adverse crisis circumstances. This exact word is used to describe the soul of Lot as he was afflicted in Sodom because of the wickedness of the people. 2 Peter 2.8, it says, For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. That word tormented, when it says he tormented his righteous soul, that's the same word. Now, God may use various torments in his children who refuse to forgive. They're a miserable lot. Joseph's brothers, after 20 years, were afflicted by the long arm of the conscience. God has found us out. Unforgiveness leaves one in torment. I mean, the tortures are working on you night and day. You you never get away from it. God takes very seriously how his children treat one another. In 1 Corinthians 11, 30 through 32, we see because of how the Christians were mistreating one another, some were weak and sick, and indeed, men had even died under the disciplinary hand of God. I do believe that unforgiveness can cut your life short. And that's a bad way to go out. Warren Wearsby says, the world's worst prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. If we refuse to forgive others, then we are only imprisoning ourselves and causing our own torment. Some of the most miserable people I have met in my ministry have been people who would not forgive others. They lived only to imagine ways to punish these people who had wronged them, but they were really only punishing themselves. Jesus makes the application, verse 35, so my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. It's not a suggestion that we forgive a repentant brother or sister, but rather a command. And if we refuse to do so, the hounds of heaven will come after us. The disciplinary torturers and tormentors in one form or another will have their way with us until we come to repentance and are willing to forgive. Note this is a heart issue. It's not enough to merely go through the motions where you say, well, I said it. Well, you might have said it, but did you mean it? Notice each of you from his heart. God demands that we mean it from the heart. If we are to walk in the freedom of forgiveness, we ourselves have to be willing to forgive. Someone as well said, he who cannot forgive others breaks down the bridge over which he himself must pass. Moody Bible Commentary, in this life, God will severely discipline those he has forgiven, but then they refuse to forgive others. That's the point. Job's friends were very accusative. You know, with friends like Job had, do you really need friends? I mean, those guys were nasty. 
I mean, the lowest point in his life, and they're just piling on. You got sin, you got sin, you got sin, you got sin. And Joe's, no, I don't, no, I don't, no, I don't. And they were nasty. They treated him badly and misrepresented God in the process. Well, in the end, God made them get right with Job, and then Job prayed for them, forgave them, and he too was restored. In Job 42, we read, So it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the, the Temanite, which was not the Terminite, but the, the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. Why? For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant, servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourself seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, acknowledging your sin. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken what is right as my servant Job has. And then the text goes on to say, So Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. And then it says this, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he had prayed for his friends. Yes, after. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. But note that. He restored Job's losses when he had prayed for his friends. Imagine Job walking around just sour and beer. I was right all along. Those, those rascals, I'll never forgive them as bad as they were to me. Uh, no, he was restored on the condition of really forgiving his friends. You know, in the New Testament, we often quote, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. Right? James 5.16. You quoted that verse? Yeah, that's yeah, a great verse. But it's good to read the entire verse. Uh, the verse in its entirety says this, James 5, 16, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. This is God's model in order to be well spiritually, even sometimes I think physically, in order to be well spiritually, we need to be right with one another. When sin is involved, we need to confront one another with the goal of gaining our brother back, getting back into fellowship. But sadly, there are times when, as it says in Titus 3.10, we have to reject a divisive person after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. But the goal is always restoration. And when repentance takes place, we need to be quick to forgive then our prayer life will be powerful. The church at Corinth had applied church discipline to a brother in sin. And it came to a point where it was enough. And Paul says they should now forgive him. It's enough. And he said this in 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Unforgiveness is Satan's thing. This is a major part of his strategy, to get us fussing, feuding, and fighting where there's a lack of forgiveness. Forgiveness takes the wind out of the devil's sails. Don't let him take advantage of you. We are not ignorant of his strategies. C.S. Lewis has some great quotes on forgiveness. One was this, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. 
Isn't that the truth? It's easy to preach forgiveness and live bitterness. And he also said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. How true this is. Forgiveness, you see, is always a matter of grace. We as believers are the recipients of the unbounded grace of God. We have received much, and in turn, we are also to grant much. If we're saved by grace, let us be gracious. This is our calling. Okay, why don't we stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close this in prayer.